This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, we decided to take the production of this program home with us. I started out recording in a closet, and then when it became obvious that working from home was going to be my new normal, I converted a wine cellar into a recording studio. Recently, when I learned that Utah Public Radio had decided to move our program from Fridays to Thursdays, I realized I needed to re-record some of the promos that we'd done for shows that had been recorded already but hadn't yet aired. And without even thinking about it, I looked down at my calendar and I saw that I had some open time really late on a Thursday evening, and so I decided I'd just head down to the home studio then. But here's the question. Was that convenient for me, or was it an example of how, when we work from home, work slips into every hour of our day? When my guest today thinks about these sorts of questions, she's not just thinking of how working from home fits into our current situation. She's thinking about how it fits into a larger historic picture. Elizabeth Patton is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Her research focuses on historical representations of gender and race in TV and film, representations of urbanism and suburbanism in popular culture, and the impact of communication technologies on our sense of place and space. And it's that last category of her studies that she deals with in her new book, Easy Living, The Rise of the Home Office. Elizabeth Patton, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I collect typewriters, and and I've got one. I've got an old Remington that I'm rather fond of. And I've always had this really nostalgic feeling for that brand. But there's a story in your book that completely changed the way I think of the word Remington. You found a sales script that was targeted at men who employed women as secretaries. Would you read that? Sure. So it's a sales script, again, from Remington Rand, and it really gives us an idea of their sales tactics. So I'll start here. So I have noticed, Mr. You fill in the blank, that you have a very competent secretary. Also that your correspondence at times appears to be very heavy. Doesn't it occasionally happen that closing time comes with much unfinished work still on her books? I know that you must dislike to ask her to work overtime, no matter how willing she may be. However, I have a suggestion to make which I feel sure will solve that difficulty. Why don't you make her a present of a Remington portable? If you would do this, the overtime problem would be solved. Whenever you have some extra work that you especially want done by, I'm sure, Miss, and you fill in the blank, would do it gladly, for then she would be able to do it at home and on her own machine. Oh my goodness. I mean, like, my blood boiled when I heard that. I mean, the idea in this script is that men should feel no qualms about asking women that work for them to work at home for, by the way, no pay. I mean, like, they use the word (laughs) no overtime twice there. It's, It's not exactly subtle. This fits into a larger narrative about how the idea of working from home has always been exploitative, particularly for women. And that starts with the thing we've come to call homemaking, which is almost always unpaid labor that women do far more than their male counterparts. 
Yes, and I'm happy that you said that because that's when I started to become interested and was trying to figure out what this book was really about. Um, it comes out of my graduate work. And as the research shifted, um, you're trying to figure out like, what is this really about? Is it about this room? Is it about the technology? Is it about what we define as work? And I realized that it was a combination of all these things in thinking about historically how we got here, especially for women. And so I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on that because what this quote from this, you know, script is really is talking about conflating women's work, right? In terms of paid market work and work in the home, housework, and as you said, homemaking. And at the time, and unfortunately, you know, this still exists today, for women, the work is interchangeable in the sense that housework is not honored, right, in the same way or valued in the same way as marketplace work. But at the same time, you can see in this early example in 1920s that clearly from the perspective of the company and how they wanted salespersons to pitch this idea is that, well, you know, it wouldn't even matter if the woman, like you said, did some work at home unpaid because at home she's not paid anyway. Right. That's so just what she does. Completed. Right. Exactly. Right. right. Perfect. That's just what she does. At one point, in this history, the exploitation jumps the gender line. It doesn't leave women, but it also increasingly corporations, marketers, builders, employers, they start to recognize a pretty big advantage in ensuring that employees of all genders are reachable at all times. This starts with the home telephone. Yes. So the history of telephone, as maybe some of the listeners are aware, that it was mainly for commercial use. It was expensive. Around the turn of the century, especially in the early part of the 1900s, that Bell Telephone, and there were also lots of other competing telephone companies at the time, but I looked at primarily Bell Telephone in terms of they had the best archival records, so that they were trying to figure out if it was possible to actually have a residential market. And so um, my research was that they were skeptical at the time, but they started to realize that there were two possible markets. Businessmen that had either smaller businesses or larger businesses, they work for larger companies or doctors, lawyers, any type of practice where they may want to do some work at the home. And so the idea of installing a telephone in the study was what I found were the early instances of where you found telephones in a residence. But they also, they meeting Bell Telephone, also started to think about other ways of promoting telephone lines in the home. And so they started to promote telephone lines for women, especially women that were homemakers or housekeepers. And so a lot of the early advertisements that I found, what I found was really interesting, that was all about convenience and finding ways to like order food or to do some sort of shopping or take care of school um, issues around children or calling the doctor, not having to run up and down the stairs. So that would be like including a different line. And so I found this history and then I realized that the telephone, even in the early telephone advertisements, they repeat the same tactics for marketing tactics by the post-war period. When you're talking about this, it, it occurs to me that this further entraps women in the home, right? Like now you don't have to go out is how they market it. But also like this is keeping women who are already largely confined to the home and largely defined by what their husbands allowed them to do to stay in the home even more. Yes. And then especially in the 1950s and 1960s, because if you look at the advertisements, they're also patronizing in the sense of, well, 
like treat your home as if it was a business or you can be just like your husband in quotes, right? And have a home office. And so uh, there was this sense of, well, we recognize that you were working before maybe as a secretary or a clerk, or if you think about during the war that women were working and now they're back in the home. And this is a way of, in some sense, yes, keeping them there, right? But allowing them to feel like they're managing the home, they're using the skills that they learned, whether it be in a junior college or high school or through work. And then also I talk about how, you know, for some companies went so far as to even promote like typewriter companies for women to make money at home. And so therefore they could honor, they would say honor their domestic obligations, work at home and contribute to the family economy. What was really striking to me is they're using this early feminist language, maybe even like pre-feminist era language, but doing it to sell products that further exploit the notion that a woman's place is at home. Yes, yes. And so, and therefore, the two ideas become this idea of the public sphere, the private sphere for women become conflated. Okay, so now your boss can call you at home, you have this workspace at home, and the dam has sort of been broken with this telephone. What's the next big technological part of this dismantling of the separation between workspaces and living spaces? Well, I would say that for technology, the next big leap after typewriters and telephones was the um, personal computer. And so this is um, looking at, you know, mostly the 80s, where you start to see, especially Apple and IBM, where they're seeing another market, again, beyond businesses where they can sell these computers. And so they start with these advertisements that are directed towards professionals. They see that as their target market, as convincing, which are basically upper middle class people, that they should bring these devices in their home for convenience, to be able to work at home, to be able to telecommute. But also there was interesting threads that I noticed in these advertisements and marketing materials that they're also marketing towards mothers in terms of their children's education. And this idea that these were important devices, if um, technological devices, if you wanted your children to get ahead and do well in school. And then also, again, for women to have it all, right? To have a career, they're playing on that for these advertisements to appeal to women to buy these devices, which were very expensive relative to what they are now for the average, you know, middle-class, upper middle-class family. And this intermingling of the idea of home space and workspace, it ultimately impacted the way homes were designed. Homes started having computer rooms that weren't just a bedroom that was converted. They were actually designed that way. You write that in the 1970s, the idea of working from home began to filter into media and architectural plans. And and when I read that, I remembered watching the Brady Bunch as a kid. And, and Mike, the dad, was always hovered yes. over a drafting desk in his den. This was the era in which these homes... And the way homes were represented in the media were really being fastened to the idea of a place where family time and work time were intermingled. Yes, I would say this is where you see more of an explosion of these type of representations in popular culture. But the genesis or the beginning in terms of where you see these rooms and the technology intersect on popular culture was definitely during a post-war period. If you think of Leave it to Beaver, um, if do you remember... Um, 
Did you watch the show? I mean, like, I remember the black and white show and there was an annoying neighbor. I don't, the the dad's (laughs) name was Ward. Yes, Ward Cleaver. So Ward Cleaver had a study. It was right off to the front of the house. When you come in, it was off to the left. And his study was his space. There weren't that many episodes that featured, but when they did feature it, it was Ward in the space or he was like, you know, disciplining the kids or there was some sort of like family business that he was talking to his wife, June about, but you start to see studies in a lot of post-war sitcoms and then also in a lot of post-war family films. And then again, it kind of disappears in 1960s, except for Playboy, which I do talk about Hugh Hefner in the book and his push for this idea of like work life. He wouldn't call it work life balance at time, but he had this idea of like live work, this kind of pleasure. If you think about Hefner in his robe, right? And so he started with the Playboy, the bachelor pad was, I talk about that as a space because that also becomes a model for this idea of having your entertainment and work in the same space. And so if the editorials on, he did a lot of editorials in Playboy between the early 1950s through the 1960s, featuring different bachelor pads for male professionals. And a lot of them had in common with some sort of studio space, right? Or a hobby room, or like you said, an architect would have a space, a drafting room, a space to work. And then again, you start seeing that pop up again in popular culture in the 1980s, 1990s. And like you said, you you, know, you remember shows and that basically had some sort of work in studio space. And I mean, this is a really good example, though, like to the extent that this working from home was a privilege, it was often one is it continues to be one that benefits men more than women. Uh, you write early in the book about watching a, a show. I think it was like one of the House Hunters show where the man is really intent on getting an office and his partner, a woman, gets a desk in the bedroom. Yes. And <laughs> and what I was trying to do was start the book with that example. And I, I watched a lot of House Hunters and HGTV. <laughs> and that's where I started noticing this one, what I thought was really fascinating, that over and over again, there was discussion about either having a dedicated home office or having an extra bedroom where it could be converted to home office. And then for the most part, and I'm not saying all the time, but for the most part, like you said, women were as an afterthought, well, you know, I'll... I'll have this hobby room or I'll find some space in the basement or, you know, my desk will go here. And so I started thinking about, well, how did it happen? And so when you look at the history, especially if you look at how it was advertised and marketed, this idea of having a space within the home, it's very gendered, right? And so over and over again, you see a space for men in the traditional, the idea of the study, which later becomes a home office by the 1980s. But for women, if they were had a workspace, whether it be a popular culture show or it's on like a TV show or in a film, or if you see it in advertisement, it was tended to be in the kitchen, like a, you know, a separate desk or a planning desk, like a fold out desk, or you would see maybe a corner of the living room, but most likely it would be in the kitchen or in the master bedroom and a small desk in an area in a master bedroom. So the telephone and the typewriter sort of break the dam of this separation between work and home. And then the home office and the personal computer start really destroying the separation of work at home such that like now we have desks in our bedrooms, we have desks in our kitchens, we have separate offices for us to do work. 
And then the smartphone comes along. And now we're working 24-7. Is this the stage where it's sort of like the cycle is complete? Well, I saw, I was thinking about that. I mean, I had to make a decision and I decided to stop in the 1990s and really computers. But if I was thinking about, you know, the evolution of technology, yes, I would agree that the cell phone or the smartphone embodies all of these technologies, right? And that it, now it's what we would say, experience of 24-7, like needing to be on, this expectation that you can meet anytime, anywhere, and that the home, you know, there's not even necessary for a space per se in the home because of the portability of smartphones, but then also for the portability of tablets and laptops. But I also think that the home office I've always found to be interesting because if you think about it, it should be a public space, but it's also a private space. And so maybe we can call it a hybrid space that symbolizes just the totality of this breakdown. When the pandemic ends, what do you think happens in the <laughs> world of working from home? Um, I've been thinking about that. So I feel like it could go in two directions. There does seem to be some crisis, especially for businesses and commercial real estate. And this idea that if people are working productively at home, and I have seen some surveys and some articles saying that employers agree that that is the case, then there would need for office space. But at the same time, I think that Although many people are celebrating, and I don't blame them, this the privilege of not having to do a long commute. And like you said, the idea that maybe you don't have to schedule a space to work and you have more flexibility. I think there will be some fatigue because I think when we start thinking about work-life balance, in the long run, I don't personally think this is a good idea. I realized that maybe what I was struggling with in terms of even starting this book or when starting this research was that I wasn't comfortable with this breakdown, that I know it's happening and I know it's symbolic. And I was looking at it as like, wow, this is a myth. But at the same time, there's some comfort in that this symbolic separation because it allows us privacy space to breathe, right? To create boundaries. And what I worry about is that the pandemic has like just fully opened up these boundaries, right? And so I really wonder if people in the long run really like this. So maybe what I think will happen is maybe it will be more ideal to work more flexible hours or, you know, maybe two days in the office and three days at home. But I don't think it'll be going forward. I think the idea of either or, like you're working all the ways at home or you're working always in the office, I think that that type or that relationship to work, I think it has permanently broken down. And this is the result, presumably, of what was kind of an organic change in the way we worked. I mean, nobody wished for a pandemic. But the interesting thing is throughout the process of writing this book, you document a really concerted effort on the part of corporate marketers and others to convince people that working from home is easy living, which is the title of your book. You write that there were a few moments of resistance. There were editorials here and there that decried the placement of telephones and homes for business use. And there was a movement that still continues to this day that challenged the notion that children should be working from home in the form of doing schoolwork there, which is really interesting in the context of some of the things that we're going through right now. But by and large, these small acts of resistance have been proven to be no match for the march toward more and more work at home. Why do you think that is? Because I, I think that 
um, in a system of capitalism, we can't really separate work from home. And that's, you know, what I struggle with because like you said, there's always a push for new markets and these companies are intentionally doing what they're designed to do is to find new customers, right? And find new spaces for their products and new ways of using their products and new people to use their products. And so the home naturally in terms of when these technologies become more portable, but then also it's not just, you know, the technologies themselves or the company themselves. We're accepting of these narratives because it is privileged to work at home and there are advantages to working at home. And so I also, in the end of the book, try to, my closing thoughts to recognize that that we're very interdependent, right? And when other people, when I say we professionals, people that are able to work at home are interdependent on people who are not able to work at home and people to provide services, right? Or make products for us and that we have to recognize this. But I think that it's quite easy to fall into and just accept that, yes, why not? Why not work at home? Why not work all hours during the day? Because this is, you know, the way our lives are structured right now, because, Honestly, this idea of easy living, and that's why I named the book that, and it's more in a sarcastic sense, right? But they're pushing this idea of easy living, but is it easy, right? In terms of, and that's what I'm trying to question by laying out this long historical analysis of how we got to where we are today. Did it surprise you at all how one-sidedly exploitative the history of working from home has been that it really has never been an employer-focused movement, even though there are definitely advantages, as you've said. But in fact, it's long been promoted and advanced by those who, and shocker here in a world of capitalism, don't actually have their employees' best interests in mind. I think there are times where, I mean, it was hard when I was, especially reading like public discourse and like newspapers, trying to figure out, you know, what direction is it coming from? There are moments where groups of the idea of like the new father in the 1980s, working women who, you know, also mothers were, were pushing for flexibility in the workplace, right? And so, and, and there's also issues around childcare that I talk about. This also influenced this idea of telecommuting and working at home. And so I do think that it's to be fair that it was coming from employees, but there's also this careerism, right? And this idea that careers are important at all costs, like that you should do what you love. And I think that that's one of the issues that make this whole idea of work-life balance problematic. And so companies, yes, that they took advantage of this. And so, you know, I don't necessarily like the villain in the book, you know, or these companies, although they play their part. But I do think that in the end and throughout that humans and people are at the center of these stories too. And so we are also buying into this narrative and also driving this public discourse about work-life balance and what it means to be in a home. Like it's a back and forth relationship that's exploited by these technology and real estate companies. This is a little outside of the scope of your book, but I imagine it's something you've thought quite a bit about, both in the context of your own life and also in the context of society. If we're going to work from home, and to some extent that seems rather inevitable, how do we ensure that it is like as much as possible truly for our benefit, for our convenience, our health, our own well-being, and, and our own families? 
So yes, I do think about that. And I feel one of the first things to do is to create boundaries. And and I, for myself, I try to say like, I'm only going to work between these hours or if I'm helping my son out with school, now that's going to be in a much heavier lift because <laughs> he's going to be 100% online in the fall in a few weeks that, you know, that I carve out time, which means that you have to be both flexible and say that maybe, you know, I'm working in the morning or I'm working in the afternoon and I pick it up again. But I think the idea of clear boundaries and say, I'm not going to answer emails at this time, or I'm going to schedule meetings at a particular time. So boundaries first and foremost. And I think being aware or cognizant of it takes a lot of people in terms of, you know, this ability to work at home and thinking about other people that make that happen, whether it people that are making these devices or people are helping out with childcare or the pandemic really made me think. And I think lots of people think about, you know, what does it mean to be essential worker and that someone that has to work and is working at the grocery store. But if people are using like online deliveries like Instacart, to think about that um, and be conscious of that, that there's privilege involved with working at home. And so I think it's up to us as workers to really think about how far or how invested that we're going to be and holding on to, which I do think these dichotomies between work and you know your private or your home life, I think they are important. And I do think that we need to hold on to them. That's Elizabeth Patton. Her new book, Easy Living, The Rise of the Home Office, is now out. And you can get it wherever you buy your books, but please do try to support your local independent bookstores. Elizabeth Patton, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>